Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Man, I was just um, watching some of your, um, some of your, I mean, I watched a few bits of different videos over the past couple of weeks, but I started watching one of the the longest videos you have on your channel with the, like the, like magic as, I forget what the title of it was like, it's like the magical history of, of modernity or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, what were your thoughts? I, I appreciate your touching on that word because I've been, th- yeah, I've been thinking about magic a little bit or just like the place of, of like what, what what's magic as a useful concept recently and like well and even trying to parse out the difference between magic and and religion too because especially within christian circles magic is kind of a touchy issue of like well, that's just that's like the bad stuff <laughs> yeah no like i've actually it's really interesting i i suppose i'm thinking about the exact same thing i've been thinking about it for a while because I got really interested in the Western esoteric tradition, um, hermeticism and alchemy. And I mainly got into that through reading Carl Jung, who took all of that stuff really seriously. Yeah. Um, And it was, let me just say it was enchanting. Like it was like really like, uh, yeah, like enchanting might be the word. That's honestly, that's that's a word I've really latched onto recently because it feels like that's fundamentally one of the things we're so sort of hungry for in 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 a world that's progressively kind of materializing everything or like i forget i think jp wrote an article not too long ago called like the um the solidification of everything (laughs) it's like the idea of just like everything breaking down to its least least meaningful sense and then it's like i don't know there's there's such a star i mean that's that's whoever coined i think it must have been verveke who came up with that that term the meaning crisis right it's like is is magic magic is almost sort of meaning <laughs> yeah that's true that's true well, um, max weber um like early 20th century i think he's like a sociologist he had this term like the disenchant like the um like the disenchantment thesis i think he called it which is like how modernity how like rationalization yeah it's just what you described like how the processes of rationalization kind of like de-soul everything i guess like take the spirit out of everything and um yeah i guess that's connected to all the different processes of modernity like science trying to like break things down to like the first principles and stuff um like a materialistic vision so what i mean sorry sorry. if you have something you want to i'm interested in because i haven't really 
read or listened to much other than I think I listened to one Terrence McKenna lecture about Hermeticism a little bit, but that was like one of the, yeah, that and, and Peterson's <laughs> Maps of Meaning is like the only only place I've ever heard of this stuff. Like it, there's literally nobody in any of my circles yeah. that has ever talked about Hermeticism before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's esoteric, right? For a reason. Like it's it's uh, supposed to be like uh, hidden, like secretive knowledge. Um, and so is even that, the, the weird, it has to do with a hermit. Okay, is that what you're about to get into? Well, like the weird thing about even studying it. Quick proviso, just to tie off that that magic thing we were talking about. I think part of the danger. I really want to discuss it, but part of the danger, like I guess from a Christian perspective, like how I'm currently thinking of it, is that because it is enchanting, and like we we kind of like yearn for that enchantment, and like it is because it's like magical theories basically. I think there's something kind of dangerous about that kind of like a playing with fire kind of thing. Maybe we could discuss later, but like the more I looked into it, I was like, it's really, really enchanting, really um, mm-hmm. this magical vision of the world is so amazing that people a few hundred years ago thought this way. Like there was a magician called John Dee who was at the court of Queen Elizabeth I. And, you know, he read her stars, like, and he was, he, he did like, um, like ma- he like made maps and compasses and so he was like a really like he was bridging the world worlds of like science and magic like in the um yeah. late 16th century so well, but, um, it, it, i guess it is the danger with sort of beginning to see you know cohesive form to things is that you begin to sort of read that pattern on i mean it becomes um like kind of a f- sort of apophenia which is like reading reading patterns into into or, or forms into things that aren't really there. Like, like in, when you're in the shower and you, it's like you, you can think you hear the phone ringing because you've actually somehow managed to perceive that pattern in the white noise of the, of the shower noise. You, like, you get so fixated on, on looking for particular patterns that you see them in places that it's maybe not useful to see them. Yeah, I think that's, that's perhaps part of it. I think there's also something about tradition like the absence of tradition or something like that. That's there's there's something quite like wild about it. Like especially alchemy. Um, you've got to imagine like during the Middle Ages, like just people studying alchemy in secret, like um, working like to like pour these metals down. But like the church would persecute magic, and like so. Right. They would have these like scripts and these theories about the transformation of nature, and so there was there's a definitely there's like a very underground element to it through the whole basically like two thousand years of it. Um, well, so it's almost so, like um, what would you say? Like it's, it's almost like conspiracy theorists or something. It's like people who are very um, paranoid about the system. It's like okay, well, there, there's secretly there's actually some truth under here, but it's being suppressed, and we need to. But we we can't. We can't let this be be public that we're doing this. We need to try and it's like a secret order of people trying to crack the code. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, and actually, like the Royal Society, like and Newton, and like when the when science was starting to establish itself, that was all connected with. Yeah, because like, Newton was an alchemist, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah, just a very interesting 
It's a it's a funny piece of history because yeah, like we think of Newton as like the this important figure in the history of science, but for like just try to ignore the fact that he's connected to this totally other tradition that we're really uncomfortable with. Yeah, no, like that's um. So this all of this stuff really, really is what um. I guess captured my interest, right? Like the fa- like, it's just the fact that Newton wrote like eighty percent of his works were alchemical manuscripts. Like, and it's like, what do we do? It's like, what do we do with that? Like, what do we actually yeah. do with that? In the with the image of Newton, who is like the paradigm of like rationality and science in the collective imagination. Like, what do we do with that? Yeah. Um. So it drove me to understand it all. Well, could, um, could you even explain a little bit more technically or just so I can have a better frame of reference? Because, I mean, I've started to at least come across random things having to do with alchemy or hermeticism, but I don't think I know technically what either one of those words means or, or where they come from. Yeah. So, um, it's complicated. Um, alchemy is like a... Um, it's like... Um, it's co- basically it's connected to Egypt. It's connected. Hermeticism is connected to the Greek culture, the Greek syncretism of like the first uh, few hundred uh, few hundred years of like the first millennium. Like all you had all these like traditions, like the Roman and Greek and Christian and Jewish like um, traditions in like in Alexandria, for instance, in Egypt. Like you had all this syncretism, basically, like this cross fertilization of all these different ideas, hmm. and. Um, what happened is like, um, I think it's like Alexander the Great. Um, I think this, the, my history is not great. I think it's like the Sioux Empire or something like his, he, Alexander the Great's um, colonization, basically expansion of Greece. He took over Egypt and, you know, planted Alexandria. And what happened was the Greeks had this um, figure in their pantheon called Hermes um, who was like a psychopomp who would like move between the like realm of the gods and the, um, and our world. And he was like a okay. messenger. It was like, he had like the winged feet, right? He like he's, flies he's between. He's the mediator between heaven and earth. <laughs> that is exactly what he is. Yeah. And so what the Greeks realized is as they looked at Egypt, which is really the mother culture of Greece in many ways, it's like a much older culture, just South of Greece. Like, the Greeks kind of like saw in the Egyptian pantheon this deity called Thoth, um, who was like the scribe, the scribe god. And Thoth is credited with like the development of script, words, language, communication. And so there was a kind of like, um, like a mapping of Hermes and Thoth, um, like a syncretism. And, um, Thoth Hermes became uh, this mythical figure called Hermes Trismegistus, which sounds really magical. Okay. Um, it is like the, you know, I'm describing the mythos of Hermeticism and alchemy, but that, so that figure is really at the heart of it. And the idea is that this is what Newton thought was that like in, in the, in the beginning, um, a sacred knowledge was, handed down um now i'm thinking of this in terms of the christian stories as i tell this it's (laughs) it's really interesting um but like a sacred knowledge was handed down uh to thoth thoth hermes and that 
that knowledge has been preserved through the generations, like through every generation, um, this kind of like occult or esoteric hidden knowledge had been preserved through all these different generations. And um, I think the word for that was the Prisca uh, Sapientia or the Prisca Theologia, like the, the pristine knowledge or the pristine right. theology. Um, and you so said that, that has to do with, with sorry, I, I, I'm jumping over to the video you were talking about with, with Egypt having, having some association with that term as well. But sorry, you wanted to do Newton first. I, I don't want to interrupt no. you. There. No, it's just that this idea was in Newton's mind, but it's quite an interesting thing to consider. Like when he, you know, with his discoveries around light and gravity, like yeah. he, one of his faiths, I guess, like what part of his vision was like the search for the Prisca Sapientia, like the pristine, the pristine knowledge. So can you explain a little bit more of what, what her... The content of that might be. Yeah. yeah well, well, okay. <laughs> what, what was their idea of this concept of... of of this pristine knowledge it's like that's the idea of like the, the real well, forms of things yeah so like that's how i understand it so figures like pythagoras for example um or, or plato really like who had these like the more i even study the greeks i'm reading a book called um in the dark places of wisdom which looks at some of the pre-socratics but like they had a whole how can i say it? like a visionary culture or culture of like like a mystery culture, I guess, where as Greek philosophy crystallizes, emerges, which is like the foundation of a lot of Western culture, like what is there is figure, like kind of figures who have this, these intuitions, I guess, like Plato's cave is like kind of the basis of a lot of met our metaphysics, like Pythagoras's ideas about numbers and just lots of people throughout history. And, I, and let me just quickly connect this to, to that alchemical stuff, because there's a whole yeah, yeah, story yeah. about alchemy. Alchemy in the popular imagination is like, is like, um, like central to it is transformation. Okay. That's why I guess I'm so interested in it because it's about transformation, the transformation of what is base, lower and fallen like lead. The metal lead was a symbol for that. Um, into what is noble, pure, refined, and perfected. Like, that is the simple vision of alchemy. Right. Or, basically, or like trying to turn everything into gold, which I, that, that's what I remember anyways of, of Maps of Meaning is think, talking about what alchemy is about, is that, yeah, it's like, it's just trying to figure out how to turn stuff into gold. <laughs> which, that's it, that's but, it. But, but as far as, like, conceptually, it's like, so, it, like, like, what you just said is just turning everything into sort of their valuable form or their most meaningful form or, like, the 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 version of themselves that they ought to be almost, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, that's a good way of putting it, like how they ought to be. Kind of kind of like their telos, I guess, or like the aim, or like the logos, like the thing towards which nature is aiming. Like in your chemical imagination... Like, both of those terms are probably worth though explaining real quick too as, as we're walking through this. So yeah, telos yeah. And, and what did you say after telos? Uh, logos. Yes, so, okay. Uh, but yeah. Um, telos I just think of as like aim. That to, that or The other one is like end. Like that towards right. which um, a process is directed. Mm -hmm. And so in the alchemical vision, like the whole of nature... Uh, has as its telos perfection. Um, it's just that 
So, but in the magical did, so vision, just like as I'm level, thinking about this right now, did the alchemists or, or, or the hermeticists, is that the right word, hermeticists, hermits? <laughs> yeah. Did, did they see that as sort of like a static state of like a, uh, like it's like we need to return to this, like, I mean, thinking about it in terms of being gold, and maybe this is just kind of reading too much of like a modern mechanistic understanding of gold into it. Is it like they, because if you think about wanting to turn everything literally into gold, it's like, okay, you want to turn everything into this, like that's the the, the King Midas story. It's, it's quite a, a sad or like scary story of turning everything into gold. You don't want everything to be literal gold. But so, yeah, did, yeah. did they so see the gold as sort of a static thing? Right? So there's a medieval thing about like um, hermeneutics of Christianity. So like, um, <laughs> is like it hermeneutics? Is that actually comes from hermeticism or, or Hermes? Yeah, like in the interpretation, right? Like, um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So it's still like that, that God of, of, of mediating between the, the, the higher theology or like the, the godlike concepts into, okay. It's okay. I didn't I never understood her, hermeneutics that way. Um, yeah, but like, you know, like the, the medieval, uh, scholastics would like, there'd be like a literal plane of reading the Bible and allegorical and anagogical. I'm throwing out lots of words. Basically there's a, there's a literal, and a symbolic plane of interpretation when reading scripture, according to a lot of the, the medieval scholastics. And it's the same actually with alchemy, which is what Carl Jung really focused in on is he basically would say like, look, let's not think about alchemy in terms of the literal transformation of like this metal into this metal lead into gold. Right. But, um, you know, he saw it as, a, tr a transmutation of the soul basically okay like the psyche the inner life of the alchemist um was undergoing a process whilst dream by like, throwing off all of these symbols and images um about you know describing all of this alchemical language and so in their manuscripts in their art in the in the in the work of alchemy let's say for Jung was content of the unconscious. So like there was like a, a real natural expression of like what was happening in what Jung would call the psyche, like what was happening within. So that's like all of this, this stuff really, really, really interested me. Like even as an idea, like it's yeah. so, um, well, it's, it's interesting just to hear so you beyond. talking about the idea of, of, it actually being about both, like, I mean, as far as in terms of reading the Bible as well, but it's like, okay, so when it comes to talking about that process of turning things into gold, it it's not just the medical, like, so obviously Carl Jung kind of reintroduced re the idea that, okay, this is about something uh, more abstract as as well, but it was also actually about trying to turn stuff into gold and and is the intuition that, that the process by which things are turned into a different state of of being that that's the same process somehow on a on a chemical or or, or chem chemistry level as a, a metaphysical level yeah i think that is the intuition yeah um and that's another image in hermeticism and alchemy is the, is the the model of the macrocosmos above and the microcosmos below which again i found in christian tradition which is super interesting but like you know the idea that there is a correspondence between the heavens and earth. And so like, if we are, if we truly see that, then 
the transformations of say like the the zodiac as that moves like in the in this as as people look up into the stars as that moves so there is a movement within our own hearts within our own lives and there are like analogies or sympathies between what is above and what is below like this is like basically the central maxim of alchemy actually is like as above so below like the, the, the that i that is kind of the basis to the magical understanding too is that by by bringing earth into conformity with heaven um power is drawn down or something like that um is does it flip around both ways though like that we sort of gain insight about the heavenly ideas by looking lower yeah yeah i think so i think so i think that it's it's ontologically is really connected to the idea that all being in nature is linked by some mysterious quintessence is that sort of the idea of archetypes really fit into that that idea as well right or at least the the way i've been thinking about them is (laughs) maybe we're jumping way too far forward but i mean the idea that that there's like there's particular relationships between things that will just sort of pop up no matter what level you you contemplate the system of reality Mm. like sort of patterns of behavior that is just like they're they're inevitable because that's just the way things most most efficiently or most uh elegantly i don't know like it's it's the way reality sort of settles yeah yeah no i think that's right um because you were doing a video about talking about chess a little while ago and i found that to be a really interesting at least trying to think about that idea in terms of it because chess is a, a little bit simpler of a system but yet there's still I don't know how many hundred thousand possibilities there are for different games of chess, but it's like more it's, than it, more it, than stars in the universe. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 approaching the infinite. It's beyond comprehension, anyways. But despite mm-hmm. all of those potential potential games and potential um, <laughs> places a game could go, there's certain patterns that tend to emerge of even like key, kind of key strategies, and, and there's plenty of books written about about you know, how to identify these patterns and how to, how to use them effectively. But like even some really simple ones is just like the idea of like the fork, <laughs> like t- taking two pieces with a knight. And it's like, there's, yeah. there's a lot of situations where that, if you can grasp that concept as a strategic pattern, you can use it in a lot of really, really important ways or like maybe different openings and things like that. It's like those to me that sort of clicked as like, that's almost like the same thing as like an archetype. It's like, it's a pattern mm. of behavior that emerges whenever it's like you, you establish a system of rules and that suddenly there's these certain ways mm. of being yeah, in the system that, that are just really, again, it's just reality kind of settles into these patterns. Mm. Yeah. What's so, so interesting about chess as an example too, is that you can have the idea of a fork or like the different tactics, uh, the different principles, which is like a real body of like established knowledge, like, you know, you know, get the center and all of these things. Um, but then like when you listen to Magnus Carlsen, who's the current, like yeah. basically the world's best at the moment. Um, he's so interesting to listen to because he just is, um, he, he just, he, it, for him, like he, there's a really interesting interview by him where like um, someone's like asking him about his chess game. And he's just saying like, look, I, I find these questions really hard to answer because at some point it just becomes very intuitive. 
And like, what does that mean? But that means that 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 means that like that fork you were talking about, that principle there, that principle there, like the logos of chess, have kind of like somehow somehow become part of his active logos or something. Or, or I even wonder if it's like if it's latched on to some deeper process about the way that life works and they've sort of meshed into each other and like this this intuitive process of recognizing patterns has overlapped now with his chess abilities. <laughs> well, intuition is like yeah. a, is a, a, a huge such a massive mystery. crazy idea. <laughs> it's a crazy idea and yet it's central, so central to like his performance in chess or just basically everything we do in life, like so much of what we do in life. And and the, the interesting thing about it is, is because Magnus Carlsen, Magnus Carlsen faces novel chess games. Like he faces novel chess games that are patterned, as you say, accord, like he'll recognize situations, but, but on the level of like emergence, might we say like novelty, like it is a new game. Like, because there are infinite games. So he'll be entering completely new, fresh game that no chess player has ever played before. Right. Um, but then finding the right moves through that situation. And I do think it is deeply analogous to life. Like, I think every day is fresh in that sense, you know, like every situation is novel in that sense. And, and even like our paths through life, like no one's lived mine or yours lives before like yeah. human beings have lived and there's been but they haven't lived stuff. this particular moment every time so it's 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 always that yeah there's always a particular but then even within the particularity of that moment you can again if this intuition about intuition is right you can sort of recognize patterns of okay this goes here this goes here and and now i understand that this is a day and this is a particular hour and in this hour i should be eating lunch <laughs> right you used the word totally. a second ago, log- logos, logos. That's thrown around a lot in in some of the communities we, you and I have both been following. But I, I don't, I mean, I, I know recently you've been reading, I think, some of, of St. Maximus the Confessor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I that guy, that name's been thrown around a little bit too. And I'm like, okay, I've, I've got to listen to this guy at some point. This sounds like some great stuff. But I, I, I haven't at all. What's... Can you break down a little bit of the meaning of, of Logos a little bit more clearly I can, what you're you're doing with it? Yeah, I can try. I'm still trying to understand. Like I'm reading to understand. Like I don't I don't know what my expertise is on that, I guess. But um look, I think I think of it in terms of hierarchy, like Aristotle talked about um the ladder of nature, like um how that there is a mineral plane, a vegetable plane, an animal plane, and the plane of humans. Like in nature, there is a kind of ontological hierarchy or like chain of being. And um, that's kind of the best way, um, that's the best kind of model I have for understanding what logos means, because logos is, it means a lot of things, but one of the ways we can use it is like the unique, another word would be intellect, but intellect in the broad sense of capacity to be creative, perhaps the, the, the capacity to um, inform structures or something like that, like the creation of beauty um, uh, or, 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 or truth with our language, like 
or with chess, like that isn't it. You are like informing how the game goes. Um, kind of, it's like a basically like the unique character of human intelligence, I guess. Um, well, and that's okay. a whole. Com- yeah. Is it, does it play into so one, one thing I've been thinking about recently and and having some back and forth with, with some people on some some subreddits in about the idea of but the idea of of thingness having to do with perception I mean this kind of goes into the uh, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it did it make a sound right because a sound mm-hmm. is something it's kind of it seems like it could just be sort of a language trick because it's like a, okay did it make a sound well a sound is something that you hear. And it's like it, there, there was the potentiality for sound, but it like it becomes the particular thing of sound when somebody is hearing it with an ear. Sound has to do with hearing and with ears and, and with that ability to, to process sound. But so if, if we kind of take all of that for granted, that, that like anything being a particular thing has to do with a particular observer um, seeing it as doing a particular thing and, and th- that has to be associated with like we, we talked about telos so it's like if if i am trying to do something and i don't even necessarily know what i'm trying to do particularly but i have some sort of aim and for some reason that seems to be relevant to that aim i can perceive it as a thing because it's it's relevant to my aim right are, are, mm. we, are we on the same page so far yeah yeah so like meaning is contextualized by the narrative or like t- story yeah. or something where you're going so if what's relevant is so if um and, and this kind of goes into the, this idea of uh, <laughs> I've, I, at least i've been thinking about, about the the concept of panpsychism and talking about, with the, about that with a few friends the idea of consciousness not being something that's totally unique to to human perception but that basically humans just have more potential to see more uses or more more different potential thingness to things than like a plant per se. So like a, a plant's perception of reality is a much simpler perception than my perception, and the plant is only going to recognize uh, far fewer things that are, are relevant to sort of its telos. But because my my telos, my aim in life, again, it I don't really know exactly what my aim in life is, right? We do as humans, it's it's not totally clear what we're doing on Earth, but we have like well, kind so- of. It's not clear. I mean, St. Maximus's answer, as it's fresh in my mind, is like to, is literally like your aim is to recognize your aim or something like that. Like the, like the logos. Is the logos hard, just hard all of the potentiality or like being able to recognize all of the potentiality of everything, every possible things? <laughs> Looking at all well, of, like, all why, of the- why, why do we have the unique consciousness we have? Like, we don't necessarily know the answer to that question, okay? Yeah. But we do intuitively have the sense that we do have some kind of unique consciousness that's different from animals and, and plants. Yeah. So why? And like St. Maximus's answer is kind of like, this is part of the creation. Like this is part of the divine plan is um, for human beings to be imbued with a logos and he kind of conceptualizes sin as like the use of that logos as like in any direction that I hope I'm explaining this. All right. It's, it's hard stuff. But, um, but is, so lo- logos is, is, it, is the meaning it, of it? I'm still not, I, I can't totally follow what that word is, is, is talking about. Um, 
Like, look, it, it is hard because it because it feels like it's it's the thing that's perceiving and the thing that's perceived. So the logoi are like the you could say forms. So like, um, I see Garrett on in on the screen, right? Like that's that's like a an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, what and and you're sitting on a chair. That's another identity. So those are the logoi in my perceptual field, mm-hmm. and I'm able to recognize those things somehow and we even have words for them and which is connected to adam's first task in genesis being to name the animals is connected to the logoi like the 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 crystallization of the patterns of things and and the seeing of what they are in essence um so so that's so there's it a, does have to do with meaning, or at least the way, way you're saying that that helps me that that clarifies it a little bit. Sorry, you, you continue. I wasn't trying to interrupt you. Well, like, I think we have a little delay here, so sometimes I'm I'm not really meaning to interrupt your talking, but it sounds like you've just stopped. Oh no, it's okay. Um, yeah, so like in some, it is confusing because I think in some sense, logos is a word that can mean like the things that we are perceiving, like chair, okay. Garrett, microphone. Like these things and the words and identities like we have because logos means them. word right and so okay. like biology which actually aristotle pioneered and aristotle's kind of important in all of this but biology if you look at like taxonomy what is that it's like mammals kingdom fire all of these different um logoi mm-hmm. like it's literally like it's literally going around the world like darwin going to the galapagos is just going around the world like going okay that's that that's that so biology like um and so there's a way in which like human understanding proceeds according to this pattern like we increase in our knowledge according to our ability to grasp the logoi um, but then another sense is like that's the thing that's doing that ordering, say, is human inte- what I think the Greek fathers called it like intellect or so there's a process by which that's happening, and that process is made in an image, the image of God, like right. okay um so fo- following that same pattern though with before it's like okay, so particular thingness or again a particular logos or logoi has to do with it with the telos the aim of the observer right um that's an interesting connection because yeah, if so. that's the case then then if sort of and this is this is the the thing that blew my mind i was talking talking to jp recently and we, were t- we just kind of came on this thought that hey if there's an infinite being that you know that perceives all of reality and actually has a purpose for it, then that purpose is what creates like the real meaning, or like the 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 most actual meaning for everything. And so it's like we have always a subjective logos or so, so subjective logos, subjective in uh, particular definitions of things. But and it's like to the extent that our aim is kind of in line with that ultimate aim of what things are for, we will kind of recognize what actual things exist. 
or or, ha- or that we will recognize them properly. Yeah, but yeah, I think that's right. I think that's um, that's the arguments that Maximus is making is is that everything there is like everything is designed according to an order to a pattern, and that basically it's a question of kind of alignment. Mm-hmm. And if um, if we use this word um, telos again, like aim, like where is if you think of like attention as like the currency of our logos or something like moment by moment, that's how the logos is being deployed or something. Yeah. And each, and what it's being deployed to is like a telos. Like it's like a, there's like a value structure behind that. Right. And then I guess the way I'm thinking about it at the moment is that you can either look down the hierarchy because like it is an ontological hierarchy or you can look up. The hierarchy towards um, the source and towards the f- the kind of fulfillment of all of the logos logoi. Yeah. Um, that's how I'm currently thinking about it, and it connects to alchemy too because part of my critique, I guess, of the alchemy stuff is so I looked at like shamanism as well for a while because they're connected, but. Like there are, my point, like the alchemists are looking at metals, like their attention is going into the mineral plane. Like it's like going down the ontological hierarchy and the shaman will like invoke the spirit of the deer in like the hunt or something like becoming the deer. So they're like going down from the human into the animal plane of consciousness. Now, you know, we can discuss whether there are consciousnesses down there, but there are definitely ancient cultures that, yeah. that believe that and well, actually that, that intuition to makes sense to me anyways it's just a, it seems like a, a difference in degree not necessarily in kind yeah i don't know i think there might be a qualitative do, do you not think there's a qualitative like a qualitative difference between like the consciousness we have and the consciousness like yeah a, i so i've been, I've been thinking about this question has. a little bit recently too and and i, I think i think from a, a pragmatic perspective, it's useful. I, I think it's useful to say yes, because but but I think that, and this is a very abstract and philosophical intuition, and I'm not really sure if I've dug deep enough in it or if I'll even be able to understand deeply enough to, to know whether or not I'm right or wrong here. But it seems to me that that every every um, everything that could be con- considered a qualitative difference is just a large enough quantitative difference that it becomes useful to consider it something else. But the, uh, it, it, so unpack that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's not necessarily a particular line between when a puddle becomes a river. There's a, there's a, there's a pragmatic line. There's not necessarily, okay. I mean, we actually think of them as different things and it is, it is useful to think about them as different things because you can do different things with them. So again, the, the telos has to do with it again, right? So if I'm trying to find a place to house, you know, a hundred fish, I don't know, I try to throw some fish in the water. I don't want to find a lake that's only 10 inches wide and an inch deep. That's not the object that I'm looking for. So pragmatically, okay. I'm looking for a different thing. 
but th- there's mm, I see what you're saying. So, it, so like, there's the a difference critical like point a where something run. becomes useful for something else, but that that it's a it's a critical point, but it's not an objective point because you know may, maybe you could get a very small river that you could still kind of fish could be in it for a little while. I mean, you could probably put a fish in a, a, a foot wide puddle of water and it would be alive a little bit longer than if it wasn't in water at all. I mean, this question is so fascinating, like and something <laughs> like. The, the jump, the ontological jump between quantity and quality, this is connected to the Logos stuff we've been discussing too, right? Because like another practical way of thinking about the Logos, as I understand it, is how quality emerges out of quantity. Like, I don't know, if you're, if you're buying a house, like you, there's all these choice, like a field of choices are in front of you. It's actually how all choice happens in a, in a strange way, but there's all these choices and they all have facts about them. This house is bigger, this house is smaller, this house has a garden, this house, like all of these, there's an infinity of potential facts about your the field of choices in front of you, right? right? And so it's plausible that you could spend eternity <laughs> considering those facts, right? right? Weighing them up, oh, but this does have not have that and like, but that's not what happens, is it? Like somehow that stuff like collapses in, or like, I would say like kind of coheres or like comes together. This is another, right? Uh, we were discussing recently with um, on the symbolic world about the meaning of the word symbol, like um, the way in which right. things are thrown together. Like, together. Mm. Yeah. So like there's a way in which reality symbolizes or something like it, it actually comes together in a meaningful way. And part of that is the activity of the Logos in a practical sense. And then so actually this one particular house is where I want to live because it really speaks to me, resonates to me, has a presence about it. And could you explain that factually? Could you say like, oh, it's... The the question is whether or not you're actually doing, you know, at some deeper level, you're actually doing a particular factual qualitative process of all these individual process of, of evaluation and it's like you're actually processing all those facts but it's kind of at a subconscious level or if it's a totally different um, way of perceiving and of processing reality altogether where it's not particular processes but somehow a collective process that then somehow spits out a particular fact about it or a particular symbol oh it's, it's love right well, that process <laughs> explain that well, it is love, right? Like, it's if you, love. like if you think, like, reflect on like the phenomenology of it, like in your experience, because it's not, it's not about like the flatness or the quantity, like none of that is making the decision. Like the heart is moving towards something immensely, towards we could say a symbol that is intensely meaningful, something like that. Okay. And what is that movement towards that? Like uh, in ancient language, it's like a desire to be in the presence of that thing, like a desire to enter communion with that thing um, or that being or, or whatsoever. Like there's, there's a moving towards, like there's an active movement towards to be in the presence of. And I think mm. that is part of the structure of human being. And that's like, uh, example I was giving was like choice, but it's the same about how we meet partners, 
career choices like our whole life is like according to that pattern of love so i'm starting to think that there is some truth in the idea that like love is at the basis of reality ontologically like at least at least if you take it the tree falls in the woods thing like if you take the fact that to hear a sound of the tree you have to have ears you have to have this unique consciousness we have then love does seem quite central to that and like love and logos I'm not not sure I'm totally on the same page as you just yet. So are are you almost talking about the sense of like longing for something? But we, we long, we, there's a pattern to it. Like there's, there's like, like why are there classics in music? Like um, Bach or Beethoven. Okay. Why are they, why, why is, why are they remembered? Mm-hmm. Because, and again, it's the same infinity, the same quantity thing. If you, if you if you tune into the music scene of anything, there's just infinite like novelty sprawling out there, like mm-hmm. this kind of quantity. Um, and yet they like stand out as these beacons, don't they? Like these classical beasts. And like why? Well, like tr- traditional answer would be because they um, kind of. Um, are like vessels for like the beautiful or like the form of the beautiful and they like lead us into that uh, they draw us into that form and they so how how is that like love though so i mean love love is like a type of desire um but it's like a desire for the sublime or a desire for the transcendent so it's like the, the is it almost like the simple thing? It's like the, it's the unification of things, or like coming together into like a, a, a higher thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, why do we love Beethoven and Bach? Because I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, like like it's like easiest to see in just two humans who love each other. It's like okay, within the Christian tradition, sure. you see them becoming a new one person, right? Or that then they become a family, which is one thing. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's another great example. I think, and so I, I just see this connection between logos. Um, another word for it is like order or coherence. And then there's different types of order. There's like beautiful, like Plato's classic transcendentals are the beautiful, the good, and the true. And so, like when you're reading a book um, and it's in, and you're really engaged in it, it's like oh, it's partaking in the form of the true like when you see a morally exemplary person that person's partaking in the form of the good like and the music is partaking in the form of the beautiful yeah and like these are like um i think these are ways in which the telos like the aim of a thing is directed towards the logos like it's perfection it's like ultimate order um and that's got to be like an ever unfolding mystery, but I think those are glimpses of what that is. And then what love is, is like somehow like there's been in us, in our hearts, like seeded a desire to really deeply participate in that, like to, to participate in that. But without becoming presence. Uh, just an amalgamation of all of us or all things, like it's like, it's not like this homeostasis desire to like just become one blob of everything so everything loses its individuality right it's 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 somehow a, a coherence of individual identity and corporal 
corporate or corporeal meaning that like it's like identity up here and down here and all the way up and down yeah i think you're right and i heard you um say uh, with your in right towards the end of your conversation with jp um i thought it was brilliant like you said about like language and and how i think you were talking about um church and like how oh, yeah. we speak different languages um and you were i think it's basically the same idea you just said there like there's a way in which the transcendent forms have to be translated would be a good word into like a particular dialect we could say or something um and i think you're absolutely spot on with that and um yeah i think that's some so the, so the lock okay. so the idea of like because the, the thing I was a little afraid of is is within this whole idea of logos being sort of ultimate meaning is that I, I, I'm getting back to that kind of picture of like turning everything into gold. It's like if, you, if it's just a static, everything just needs to like become just this high, you know, huge form and sort of submit itself to, to becoming this statue of what the real meaning of things is. That's kind of a, a scary con concept and it seems kind of counterintuitive to everything that we would feel would be good. It's like, okay, if everything loses its its thingness just so it can kind of submit to one high ultimate thing and become one <laughs> one monolith of like the real thing. That that just see like you feel it in your gut when you think about that. It's like that's just that's not that's not what we're after, right? <laughs> but I think Well isn't that the isn't that the Christian theological vision of this is again like connecting the logos and love is like there's like a freedom of our will to choose otherwise, like to, to do no. a, a part, a path other yeah. or to do that path. Well, and like, but is it just both a freedom or is it an actual, well, they're both of those are aims, right? So like you aim away from the beautiful or you aim towards it. Yeah. And that's a moment to moment choice. We, that's what okay. classically was called our will. Our will is, directed there or here um and i think that's getting at love like love is kind of aiming at the highest and um i don't know for me that's been a learning process it's not necessarily self-evident and like we we aim at all sorts of things don't we like you know there's all these different um passions and desires and things that motivate our being that have their own tell us that their own gender, their own wills, basically. Mm -hmm. And they're pulling us into, into like, I guess, fragmentation or, you know, like well, chaos. I've, I've just had this, <laughs> something just landed for me in my head. Cause I, I so I, I mean, I, I really like music. I, I play a lot of music, my family tradition. We, my, my grandparents and parents traveled around playing music. And so I was kind of born into to a tradition of playing a lot of music and thinking about music a lot. Um, and so in recent years, I've started to pay attention to certain people, like try to break down music theory and stuff and sometimes apply it to philosophy, which is always such a cool rabbit trail to go down. I find anyways, but one of the craziest things is that the idea, I mean, again, this, this kind of appeals to an intuitive, uh, pull again, but I, I think most people would agree if you were to say that harmony is more beautiful than, than unison. Harmony. What's the difference between harmony and unison? Okay, so uh, you, two unison voices would just be singing the same note, exactly the same note, right? 
Okay. That's total uniformity. That's it's unison, right? Total unification, mm. right? Harmony. I'm not even sure if you could break down the, the etymology. Maybe it has something to do with harm to each other. <laughs> but the idea with harmony is that if you take the waveforms, they line up perfectly sometimes and other times they don't. And the most generally pleasing type of harmony or like the most commonly understood harmony that just shows up no matter what culture has kind of discovered music I think is the perfect fifth right and that's that's this really great um, great mathematical relationship of three over two or approximately it's actually might be closer to um, this this other mathematical uh, uh, concept phi have you heard of phi okay this, no I haven't I, I'm not an expert at all on this. I'm just kind of grasping at it, but it's just really even interesting to me. So I've been watching some videos and reading a couple of different things about it. But it's 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 this weird mathematical relationship that shows up all over the place. And one of the best ways of of um, at least putting it into into numbers because it's not a specific. It, I think it's an irrational number. Um, but there there are fractions ratios that kind of approach it, and that's uh, the Fibonacci sequence is a great example of it. It's just it's numbers that is yeah. Kind of, there, there's these relationships in nature where it's like. Um, I, I, I know a few of the Fibonacci numbers. It's like so th 5 over 3 is 1, 8 over 5, uh, 13 over 8. But all of those cohere in almost the exact same way that um, that musical harmony, it, there's a similar hierarchy there. Um, it's so, so most of the, the harmonic relationships that we find most pleasing are, are actually Fibonacci relationships. And, um, and a perfect fifth is actually a 3 over 2 polyrhythm. It's a Fibonacci relationship of three over two. And so what that sounds like in rhythmic form is. So every four beats, every four times, you know, so if you imagine this wavelengths, every four times they're going to. They're going to actually cohere exactly, but there's still this disagreement between them. They'll have a unison technically every four times, right? Exactly. But then. And so th th this is this is the thing. So with harmony, we we find this more interesting or more beautiful or more like, I, I think it's just yeah, it's more beautiful because it's like there's uniformity and there's individuality, right? And that's, that's what love is, right? <laughs> I love that. Like music's such a mystery. Like um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that. Um, yeah, I've been I've been producing a bit of like electronic music, and it's just so, just like the waveforms and the patterns and the structures of it, and that harmony has been a massive theme for me as well. Just just like in the way we order our lives, like I feel like harmony is one of those the musical metaphor. I think is super important because there's all these dynamic things like happening in our lives, like and I feel like. The way they come together in harmony feels like. Well, it feels like a very alchemical intuition to think that 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 relationship between notes is somehow similar to the relationships between people and ultimately like God and man. But that <laughs> that that seems to be the intuition of of the spiritually inclined. Yeah, like I think music. That's where like, yeah. It just dovetails into what we were talking about, about Logos, like music, that Fibonacci stuff you're talking about is like an order to it, right? It's like there's an order, but really like to create a new piece of fresh music is to 
not bring it it's the same as with the chess stuff it's like it has to be like a spontaneity i guess is the word like it has to be freely willed or something like free like genuinely freely willed and yet the most free will is like the coming into a harmony the coming into like a a certain pattern but yeah you're right i don't i guess there is a danger about thinking about it in terms of like um something that everyone some like fixed thing coherence or or perfect um is it you i don't know there's different words you could use but yeah like a perfect absolute submission where everything becomes the same thing Hmm. yeah no so this is why i've just been really fascinated to be i've been like reading a lot of like the saints and trying to and scripture and trying to just i don't know understand christianity more deeply and i think one of the things super that's really compelling for me is is this like profound cosmological vision like about the like the nature of human being the nature of our wills and how love is kind of central to it all and what love means right and the idea of the freedom of the will like where did that idea even come from like that was really interesting to me like as part of like the zeitgeist of our culture like um you know freedom of speech like okay but like, what like freedom of speech why is that this thing we value it's like oh, okay because we value freedom of the will like why do we value that just trying to dig into all of those things um historically and i think it does it's connected to Christianity as far as I can tell. And I think there's a lot of like traditions that talk about the idea of the freedom of the will. So um, what, what drew you? Cause you, you didn't really set out on your, your journey through spiritualism and Jungian psychology and all this with the original intent of, of becoming a Christian, right? Or did you? No. Um, <laughs> this is, no, I, I really didn't. Like I grew up, I mean, we're quite secular in the UK, um, which means I didn't necessarily have a particular particular religious education, to be honest. I've I've slowly realized, like, I don't think I was particularly... It's a weird one. The reason I think beauty is such an interesting one for me is because, like, we have all these parish churches in the UK and um, these stained glass windows and, like, these beautiful buildings... They're like these ancient buildings and they're just all around the landscape. And like, they speak of something, like they speak of like something truly profound. Um, and um, so there's like this beauty that was just enduring through my whole life. And I think like um, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings rock played a similar role in my life. Like it's just, this like yearning for the transcendent. And like there were these things in the background, let's say. Um, but like, as I developed intellectually, I wasn't necessarily, I listened to some of the new atheists, Christian Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and stuff like that in my early twenties. And, um, I guess yeah, it all started for me with an existential crisis, to be honest, like a, um, a real, a genuine spiritual crisis in my early twenties. Um, and I mean, that's comparable to what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. Like I yeah. was just um, a void. Like it was just a complete void 
what, what, what got you there? Like, um, that's a good question. Like, I guess I've been trying to figure that out ever since. Like, um, like my, my university education was coming to an end. I think there was an end of a story there, which was connected to it. Like I'd been, um, in education, like my whole life and that narrative was coming to an end. And then I suppose what was underneath that narrative breaking down was like, who am I kind of thing, which is, I don't know, normal to people in their early twenties, I guess, trying to formulate an identity, like who am I? Like, what is it to me? Like, what is my story? Like, what is, what do I value and stuff? Yeah. And there was just nothing there. Like there was just where it was a mess. It was just, that was what Nietzsche called the abyss, right? Like mm-hmm. there's, there was some kind of like, and, um, it's almost like our our culture has handed us sort of a story that we're supposed to play out. Like we almost ha- we have like almost a religious tradition of like what it means to be a person, but the story is a really incomplete story that ends when you when you finish um, contributing to the the primary economic systems that the culture wants you to take participate in. So once once you've finished getting a uni- university degree, culture has digested you financially, and and they're done. And so now what are you going to go and be? Well, suddenly that question is your question to ask and not just what the culture wanted to do with you. Or at least from, from a capitalistic perspective. And I, I'm very critical of that lately. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm probably painting it in a, in a worse light in some ways than, than, it, than it should be, but my dad will probably kick my butt about that later. No, I do that. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you on it. I think it's... Um, I don't know. Like, I, it's... It's a strange thing, like figuring out what our own story is. And I don't know if it's a particularly modern thing or not. I think that's something I'm still, it could be archetypal, right? It could, and I probably leaned more towards that. Like every human being has, goes through some kind of crisis of meaning and a reconstitution of that crisis of meaning, even into ancient times. I think that's probably, I think that's probably true. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's like, not that unique to our current, like every culture, that's sort of what it does. It, it it brings you up to a certain point and then it throws you out and says, now you figure out who you are. Yeah. Yeah. So I got really interested in like um, indigenous, like vision quest rights, mm. like, um, which, uh, like a, yeah, going out into the wild. Like a walkabout? Yeah. Uh, I don't know much about it. Just going out, like, I don't know, like certain tribes going out into the desert it on your own as a young man. And the idea is like, you're not fully part of the community until you've had that dream, like, until you've been initiated and received what some tribes call like a big dream. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that was like, I think, I think I got to there from like young and stuff, but um I think that's like really, really deep perception. There. Like there is a sense in which we need that our own dreams, that we need to develop our imagination. Like um, I'm really be able to, um, to dream, to, to envision and to imagine. And I think there aren't a particular, there's not a huge amount of resources for that in the culture. And I don't know necessarily that, well, I don't know. Like it's like traditionally, like the liberal arts. Like the whole point of that is for you to cultivate yourself and cultivate yeah. virtues and cultivate like music is one of the classical liberal arts. Like a geometry, like mathematics, like um, rhetoric, the ability to speak. Like mm-hmm. all of these things are the cultivation of the soul. 
that's kind of um, the ideal, I suppose, of education. But you actually went um, through the whole process of, of going to university and stuff, and then, and it was after that that you started to, that you kind of hit the void, you, you hit the bottom of, of your universe and was like, oh, wait, there's nothing under here. Yeah, well, it's, it's part of it is dousing, right? Like a lot of, I dousing. studied philosophy as well. Hmm? What is, sorry, what is that? Dousing? Oh, uh, doubting. Doubting. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but like I studied philosophy and like, we're just really encouraged to doubt paradigms, just a question, right? right? It's a question, 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 question. And um, there's a positive element to that. Um, but there's also an undermining effect of, of that. Like there's a way in which that undermines the integrity of our narratives and our belief systems, undermines our faith, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess that was my experience. But there was also like nothing. Um, there's a lot of like doubt and criticism in that in the academia, but not a, 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 lot, a lot of like positive visioning, dreaming. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson had a conversation with Roger Scruton, um, which talks about like apprehending the transcendent, and I think they really strike a note in that talk which I really resonate with um, about the way in which they're like, it's kind of like a call to envision what is good, true and beautiful, like what is transcendent and to, and to kind of like call those forms into existence through the way we are. And I think, I don't know, I was never in encouraged to do that at any point during my education right it was um, just ask questions ask questions like it wasn't it wasn't try to conceive of answers or or try to like it was it, yeah i i and that's that that's fundamentally i feel like the philosophy I, I, that that i was sort of handed by by you know our collective culture in, in the west as well it's just like there's no there's no end to the questions you can ask except there sort of was <laughs> it, once you've kind of doubted the 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 very nature of existence itself you've asked the last question and you've taken the whole bottom out of your reality and, and you said okay well i mean that's that, that was my sort of experience anyways with it I, i'm sorry if i'm trying to if i'm reading my story too much on to, on onto yours but i i think i had a very similar experience with like just kind of getting to the bottom of the questions and then realizing i have to actually begin to believe an answer whether i can whether I can come up with a good good enough one or not, this is really there's a lot of pressure here because I actually, if I want to believe anything, I'm, I'm going to have to be willing to believe something, and I might be wrong. Yeah. So um, a big figure for me was um, Soren Kierkegaard, the father of existentialism, like Danish. Yeah. Um, kind of like Christian existentialism, and he read a bit of his stuff. I read like yeah. Um, I did a bit of it at university and then, and one of the things that really stuck with me was like one of his early journal entries uh, where he, he took this amazing like piece and he talks about how, like what good would it do me to know like what the objective truth even was? Like what would it, good would it do me to have accumulated all of this knowledge if I did not know what was true for me? Like 
And he had this kind of idea of like subjectivity as truth. Like if I don't know what the idea is for which I'm willing to live and die, what good is all of the knowledge in the world? Like what good would it be to apprehend truth in the cultural sense if that was lacking? And he wrote that in his early 20s about the same time I was wow. reading him. And it was just this amazing like coincidence. Um, so it's it like, felt like what, it what good really... would, the, would the cohesive entity of the song be without the individual pieces creating harmony? It's a good way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the individuality... Um, sorry, I, I just extrapolated here, but continue though. This, this, is, this is really good. Like, I mean... I, so, sorry, I think that's regard, a good I, way of putting it. I, I only listened to I, I listened to one of his books. I think I listened to um, the um, the sickness unto death, and I didn't even understand what was going on half of the time. But it was this sort of like almost trippy experience of just. But it was it was depressing for me because I I couldn't quite follow any solution he came to. I just felt the breakdown of things happening as he's kind of unpacking and asking these questions. He uh, yeah, death is a big theme for Kierkegaard. I think his name actually means graveyard or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> you go with the, with the lo logos things or the logoi. Your your name, the word that that identifies you, sort of creates you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's a big theme for him. Um, but um, he's he's a super interesting figure. He was really formative for me. Like the I and and so. I, I think that's really shaped my thinking through the whole of my twenties, like that meditation from Kierkegaard, like what good would it do me to acquire any of that knowledge mm -hmm. other than like, if I don't know what's true for me. And so I guess I'm still on that journey. And um, I guess I moved all, I don't know. Um, I guess, I don't know why, but there was a kind of like anything but Christian thing in me as I explore, I was like, okay, start with meditation, got really into Zen, uh, Alan Watts, um, Terence McKenna, um, um, new age, like just new age kind of paradigms, like drawing, um, I like Aldous Huxley's idea, like the idea of like the perennial philosophy, like the, that the all religions contain a fragment of truth. Like, right. So all of those, um, I guess I moved through those stories and, and paradigms. Um, but I guess ultimately I found them all lacking um, and it's hard to say exactly in what way, but I guess, I guess I don't know if I could find a home in any of them or something like that. It's hard for me to articulate. I don't know if I could find a home in anyone, any, any one of them or, whether they were a story I could fully inhabit and participate in. Um, I guess that's the best language I have for it. Um, as interesting insights I learned from a lot of them, but could I participate in that story in, in the depth and could that really, yeah. Um, and I guess the musical metaphor is perfect again here because like, it's like if I am a violin and like the world's a symphony, like can I really, like can my logos uh, share in the greater logos of the symphony? Like can I participate fully in in the fullness of the 
Um, so I guess that's how I've, how I've come to Christianity. I think I've missed missed some things probably, but I just um, yeah. And and something Jonathan Pajot said like was like quite helpful with me was like um that you kind of have to be participating in one story that you have to be incarnating and living and walking through a particular narrative and a particular story and um part of the problem of a lot of new age spirituality is that you're not in any one story actually you're just outside all of the stories and just like picking off the fruits of the world's spiritual traditions and just having a bank on them like um it's not really where are you at that point right you're not you become just a consumer of religion rather than a participant in the larger structure of reality or whatever exactly and you're not really within a religion you're actually outside of it you know like you're because you're the one that's looking at buddhism and hinduism and christianity and uh judging them all so like what perspective do you inhabit is the question uh, Jonathan Pajot asked and I thought that was really great. Um, and then that loops to what something you said, you know, that thing you said about church and language, how like how we if people speak different languages, like the like our religion is akin to our language in that way, like we have to have a particular dialect in which we speak to say anything concrete and definite. And so we have to, yeah, we have to adopt a particular story. Um, you have to incarnate. I, I, I love that word, like thinking about it in terms of, of the Christian you know, story of the incarnation. It's like, so it's like taking, taking a higher concept and incarnating it down into a lower realm. So it's still sort of the same thing, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's become submitted to a lower or a more subjective experience or something like that. Yeah. Right. Incarnation. Yeah. But um, do you have any, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is a weird question, but like, do you, do you ever have any of the, of a sense of that? Like maybe the reason you're, you gravitate towards Christianity. And this is a question I've struggled with at times, but like, was the only reason you had to settle on Christianity because that was the only one pragmatically you could participate in given where you were in the world and, and the culture around you and, you know, the access to, you know, religion actually existing and those communities actually existing? Um, it's interesting because like, that's definitely a part of it, but I don't think that's the central spirit. Like for me, it's like my heart was prepared for Christianity for several years, like living in, in what was called sin in tradition. I was kind of just living in sin and like, I didn't know, I had to call it that. Um, just thought I could just be me, like just live how I want to live. And ultimately like the telos or like the end of that story was spiritually unfulfilling we could say like it didn't lead anywhere and so what do i do at that point do i just continue and just kind of nihilistically accept that that is what it is or do i kind of reflect and see if there are other ways to be um you know that of course there are like i read like marcus aurelius's meditations some stoic stuff like 
ideas about virtue and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, like, you know, lots of ancient people thought about this idea of morality. Like, there's a lot of people who took quite seriously the idea that there are kind of like right ways and wrong ways to live. And this, these ways I'm living are failing in certain ways. And so it's, it's born of a kind of reflection on that in my own heart, I think. Um, and then eventually I realized like finding the idea of the seven deadly sins was, um, I'm just really connected for me, like really, really deeply connected for me. Like I was like, Oh wow. Like there's this whole theological tradition describing exactly the sinful nature of human beings and like how that's overcome and, Sort of like telling like, you yeah. what you already had a sense of, or, or like, I mean, Peterson talks about the idea of like, he, he feels like when he's speaking truth, he's not really revealing or he's not really um, telling somebody anything that they didn't know. It's like, if it feels true, it's probably because intuitively you said like your, the idea of like your heart being prepared for something. And then it's like, there's something welling up and then suddenly somebody gives form to it. Somebody gives you a logos to actually fit that potentiality to it's like, Oh, that's exactly what I've been feeling. And, and now I can actually, I can hold it and it's become a thing. And it's like this, this negative stuff that I didn't want. Now I can actually see, Oh, the, the, the seven deadly sins. Now I actually have a way of categorizing it and I can see it and it's become a particular thing. Oh, that's a perfect way to put it. Um, that's such a good way of putting it. And, and I really, the more I look at Christianity, I actually see Jesus as what you just described there, like, like the eschatological or metaphysical height or pinnacle of that exact thing you just described, like in all the ancient stories, all of these ways in which human beings were like participating in something that they couldn't quite, um, that didn't quite have an incarnate logos or like wasn't like revealed in a certain way. Um, so like that same pattern in my own life about things clicking basically. And it is like a pattern of revelation. Like it is the veil from my eyes is being fallen. And like a revelation comes like all this while I was living, aha, like as a way of understanding what that is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's heart being prepared. I think was a big one for me, like by the churches we have here in England by our history. You can't really understand our history in England without understanding Christianity. You can't understand what these buildings are and these beautiful buildings are. Um, you can't understand, like, well, you can understand it, but like the Lord of the Rings is really formative for me. Like that story has always had a special place in my yeah, heart. What, what's, what sort of insight? Uh, I mean, I, I, I obviously I, I find Tolkien's whole universe to be really, really inspiring and meaningful as well. But what, what, kind of landed about those stories that helped you to process, you know, you said like the buildings around you and like the meaning of, of all of that. Um, they're just beautiful. Let's put it simply like really, I think beauty is such a powerful thing. Like it's, it's just because what it does is it just quiets the searching mind, doesn't it? You know, when you're in the presence of beauty, like the intellectual and rational stuff just, has to be silent and humble before it because it's just so amazing. So, I mean, that really, like, um, just Tolkien's world is very enchanting, be rich, beautiful, basically the best story told 
in popular culture yeah. recently, you know, in the zeitgeist, I guess. I think there's a greater story, which is the Christian story, but... It's, it's interesting and, that um, the culture is sort of willing to accept Tolkien's universe, where we've kind of... It's maybe that, that we haven't sort of discovered totally that, it, that it's Christian. <laughs> it's like, if somebody were to outright say it, then they'd be like, oh, well, we don't want that anymore. But because it's kind of maintained this anonymity or, or this sort of, like, it's, it's a covert operation of telling this incredible story about beauty and, and higher meaning. So let's talk about that, because... Um, I've heard you say that um, you're back, like you're, some of your background is like evangelical. Yeah. Um, something that so the evangelism means like spreading the good news, right? Um, yes. And so, so something that's really, really interested me, and I wonder what your perspective on this is, is like basically what I understand as like the hiddenness of God, um, or what did you say? You said, you said covert, and so for me. The Lord of the Rings, at the heart of that is the hiddenness of God, like the mystery of God. Um, and it's covert, it's like under the radar in some sense. And I think the same is true with the churches. Like, it's more obvious in a church, but like, even so, just like, or in, in music, right? So I just, I really have this deep conviction that what is beautiful does speak of the transcendent. It speaks of the nature of God. Mm. And so, um, but there's something about it that I think truly evangelizes, like beauty truly evangelizes. Um, but it's not in the way I'd typically understood evangelism, because when I listen to, say, Richard Dawkins debating evangelists or Louis Theroux doing documentaries, yeah. um, I had this different image of what evangelism is, right? And it's something I'm still trying to work out, but yeah. it's kind of the difference between saying like, I don't know, because obviously See, I, I, I think one of the things that, that my tradition has sort of struggled with is I think we kind of fell prey to the same strategies of kind of a, a rationalism or, or, um, it's hard. I haven't quite found the right word for the movement, but I mean, essentially the Enlightenment, which to me seems like the the entrance into one of the darkest periods of humanity in certain senses is like the Enlightenment is almost this this moment where we suddenly decide that we could just do it for ourselves and we actually don't need we we don't need the higher forces to stay in the dark. We can actually just create them ourselves or something like that. And, and so the idea of evangelism or the, at least the evangelical tradition and the way that I, I you can see it play out is that it's it kind of lost sight of the of, of the transcendence of beauty and of, of God and it kind of distilled spreading the good news down to a, a, a something that's really gamified something very particular in its strategy and very particular when it's trying to get you to do which is to basically be able to read this prayer the sinner's prayer and say yep that applies to me check your name on the box and basically sign a contract which contract is sort of like a very it's like a pragmatic version of relationship it's relationship um stripped of everything that makes it makes it mysterious a contract distills the relationship down to something that's on paper and you can see this is exactly what this relationship entails and these are the expectations and this is what it is, right? But actual relationship isn't built fundamentally on contracts. Relationship is built on the mystery and, and the give and take of, of 
wondering about it's like you don't even know what sort of the other person would be willing to give up for you or what you would be willing to give up for the other person it's this like and and that mystery is partially what's exciting about it but it's also what allows it to be something bigger than than maybe it even is it's it's like it's it's hard to even describe but like the magic of of real love and a real loving relationship is that it's not explicitly this thing that's on a contract it's like like even the idea of marriage being a contract that's a, a very low view of marriage and and the, and then from that you get this very low view of of the preservation of marriage it's like you can just throw away a marriage you just got to avoid the contract it's like that's not what marriage is marriage the the, con- <laughs> the contract is just some 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 way to make your marriage play the game of the legal system and be able to it's translating that that very abstract very big idea of relationship into it into a little document so that way you can put it into the stacks of papers that that are are, are the system of you know systematizing things but so when when it's connected so oh, no no sure sure go, go for it which is connected to something we were discussing earlier right you know about disenchantment and rationalization and the way in which exactly yeah magic's being like broken down into the smallest pieces or something but yeah so i mean that that's as far as the version of evangelism that that we were doing and, and I, I don't mean to, to totally because obviously it wasn't totally ineffective. evangelicals have been able to spread christianity in effective way. i mean billy graham is connected with the evangelical tradition and like obviously he's even outside of like his name isn't just like a like a a household name among evangelicals. People know who Billy Graham is because he did something meaningful. He was able to pack stadiums full of people that they could like feel something meaningful he was talking about. But there was something that was creeping in through that tradition. And and, and I, I, again, I really don't feel like it was unique to Christianity at all or the evangelicals, but this, this gamification of Christianity crept in. That's what I want to call it anyways. And so what do you, what do you mean gamification? So like kind of trap, Trying so, to get the win, you mean? Like trying to? Yeah. Well, it comes down to this, this tension I, I find between, and this is something I think about a little bit, is about the difference between games and stories. And so the, the difference to me, and I, I think I might be able to lay this out a little bit better. We were talking about this in our first first talk I did, on, kind of to do with this project, and I think I've got a little bit further in processing this problem. But so I think the difference is that a game. Distill. I mean, what they have in common, maybe I should say first of all, is that the games and stories both sort of distill reality down to like one particular metric, right? They they bring it down to like, or or maybe a couple, but it's like you at least one get get one telos of value. Okay, this is where we're going, and this is what we're trying to go away from. Okay. Right, and so with within a game, that is based on very mathematical systems of a score, and of fouls and and of you know of, of death so i mean if, if you look at your your stats on a video game and see how long you've been playing and what you've accomplished and what percentage you've made it right it's like those are, are very particular things and we kind of agree within a game that those represent your progress in the game there, there's yeah. something beyond that though because people especially gamers who, who review games they talk about like it's like okay there's different even styles of, of playing video games because games can be about you know, having fun in a game. And it's like, you see somebody playing Grand Theft Auto five. It's not about like 100% in the game. It's about like all the crazy things you could do in that game engine. Right. Uh, or, or within That's Minecraft, true. it's not about winning, right? It's, it's about something else. It's, it's, so there, there, there's certainly like more storified games, 
but like generally speaking, we can we can think about that general concept of of, of a game as having to more to do with a particular score, and we can distill the system down to that. But then when it comes to a story, everything gets a little bit more abstract, and it's like a story it almost intrinsically has to do with beauty. Or, or it has to do with these abstract forms, things we're kind of almost talking about. But like a story, even though we can cut, we cut, distill it down to a particular narrative and, and you're going somewhere, it's, there's still that linearity to it and, 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 a, and a telos sort of associated to it, right? Where it's like, you're trying to get from here to here. So we do have a sense of like what it means to get through the story and to get to the end. But it's, it's cohering a whole bunch of, it's just basically the difference is just an, abstract sense of progress versus a very particular sense of progress that's interesting yeah i think there's something about stories where they unfold and like a good story you don't necessarily know the end right as it as you but yeah you're right they do i guess the meaning of the story like comedy and tragedy that is kind of defined by its telos by where it ends up yeah so and Um, i think i think in in both cases it's sort of a yin yang thing that I think there's there's traces of story that show up in video games and probably the better the game is the more it will kind of encapsulate that element as well but then a story again it feels totally incoherent unless there's sort of a system of of a, a, a system of progress or, or kind of a, a gamification of it a little bit too it's just that if we stray too far to either one of those ends well that that's fundamentally what i what i feel like I keep on thinking about it in terms of capitalism, but I'm not sure if that's quite what it is. But it's just the the int the inclination to want to like fit all of the story of I mean of the story of religion into a particular metric where we can at least say we can say when we've scored a goal, right? We can say that when we've got a convert. And and I, I don't know if this actually started with Billy Graham, but at least I, I, he he was somebody who sort of popularized the idea of like you know how many how many converts did we get at that conference right and we could write it down because we know how many people prayed the prayer people do the questionnaire and, and then we can we can put it in data right so that's so what it's I'm quantity, about as the right? yeah it's a movement from quality to quantity it's like the opposite <laughs> of the thing we yeah yeah it is isn't it like yeah it's the yeah. opposite of the process we were just talking about because we're trying to quantify aren't we right like, and it's um yeah, no, I totally hear what you're saying. Have you heard um, Jordan Peterson talk about this? He has a big thing about games. Um, and he talks about, you know, it's not about the game, it's about, you know, constantly improving at the game. Um, and, like, he talks about the heroic pattern as, like, the pattern which is constantly striving to improve at games. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was, that was interesting, too. That draws out something about this relationship because... It's almost, I don't know if I want to call it an idolatry or something, but like if I'm in a football game right now and like my only sense of identity is bound up with winning this game now, then I lose sense of the bigger picture, don't I? Like, or the bigger story of playing football across my life or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So in order, and and this is so interesting. So, I mean, (laughs) one of the, the first people that actually helped me to really click and see that process surprisingly is richard dawkins because i i listened to his book on audible um i listened to the selfish gene and honestly it's so funny coming to that listening to that book growing up in in a very very christian home and then suddenly it's almost like what he was trying to do was to sort of unpack religion and explain why it was dumb and disenchant the world 
that book, the experience of reading that book was so enchanting to me because my, it was my first exposure to the beauty of the story of evolution. Dawkins was the one who, who, who introduced me to the, the computers playing the prisoner's div- dilemma problem. So there's all these different programmers. I think it even used to be sort of like a, a, an annual game where different programmers would get together and, and t- test out their solutions to the, to the prisoner's dilemma problem against each other and see which ones would win. But the, the game, told, like as far as what would win, I, when you're just playing one round of the game, when you're just trying to figure out the answer to the prisoner's dilemma, the answer isn't obvious, just tattle on the other prisoner, which if, if anybody, you know, obviously... If you are you familiar with this kind of philosophical problem or or this little game? Uh, the prisoner's d- dilemma. Um, yeah, I think so. It's, it's, it's basically yeah. It, it's it's like if you have two prisoners and you, you're questioning them in different rooms, you you offer them both a reward to tattle on the other, but you don't have evidence to to book either one of them. But if 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 they both confess, then they're both going in jail. If neither of them confess, they both are at least going free. But if one of them confesses. He's going free and he's getting a wad of cash. Right. Right. And so the obvious answer in that problem is to tattle on the other on the on the other prisoner because either he's going he's gonna sell you out and you're not you're gonna do nothing and, and he's not not only is he gonna go free, he's gonna get money. Or you don't or yeah, so either you win or you win big time. Or you at least did, don't do worse than the other guy. Those are the three outcomes of of if you actually if you choose to. So the, the only way that you both are not having a net net loss is if both of you don't sell the other person out. But then not, nobody gets any great gains from the situation, right? And so the I, I think it's like every, everybody's trying to solve this problem. It's like this this game. How, how do how do we solve this game? What, what's the best way to win this? I, I don't even know why it became so popular, but I, I guess people were just interested in this. Like, okay, what's the solution to this problem? But the strategies for winning that game drastically, drastically changed as soon as it became an iterative game. So as soon as you're not just playing it once, but you're playing it over and over and over and over again, ad infinitum, then the strategy that's the most effective becomes so much more complex and so much more interesting. And, and that's what sparked this whole you know, now we can actually make this an event every year of who, who's going to win this game because we actually don't, it's, it's not an obvious answer anymore. We actually have to figure out, you know, is it, is it tit for tat? That was going to be, that was one of the, the best, um, the best algorithms to run the game, which was, you know, don't do anything, but if the other guy sells you out, sell him out next time or something like that. Or, or but then there was another one that was a little bit better later on where it was like, okay, well, sell him out sometimes, but kind of randomly. But then also if he sells you out, sell him out right back. And it's like there's all these different little interesting things. But it's just like as soon as you realize that you're not just playing one game, you have to understand a meta understanding of strategy. Yeah, right. So that's like a story, isn't it? Like that's you've got to account for time now. Yeah. You've got to account for time. But not only that is like, so if, if there's, I, I think that strategy even changes a bit depending on whether or not it's an infinite set of games Versus if there is, a, because if, if you know when the end happens, if you know the last game is coming up, on the last game, you're going to play for sure, sell the other guy out. Because that's your best bet at, at getting something. Right? 
But if yeah. you never know when the end is, if, if the game that you're playing is an infinite game, if you, if you have a sense of the afterlife, That's right? That's really interesting. <laughs> that, then your strategy becomes always... I don't know. It, 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 it at least makes the question a little bit more difficult to get in. It's like, that's what religion does. It pokes holes in our, in our strategies with closed systems of games. And it says, okay, but what do you do if the game goes on forever? How do you, then what do you do? How do you conceptualize, you know, what the best strategy is? Was this Richard Dawkins' argument? Yes. <laughs> well, he, he doesn't go so far as to talk about the afterlife, but he just talks about how strategy changes once the game is iterative. And I, as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, so that's why Christians believe in an afterlife. Or like that, that's why that's such a meaningful idea. Wow. That's so insightful. That's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. it's so funny reading this book and having him sort of... Uh, and every time he would go on a little tirade about how much he hated religion, I was like, oh, this is... This is, this is adorable Richard. you're 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 defending my beliefs better than i ever could by pretend by by trying to say that you think they're dumb have you ever um heard much from tom holland the historian no i've i've um i've heard paul van Clay talk a little bit about him I, i've been meaning to give him give him his due but i i i should, uh, I, should I should box in though what i just said about richard dawkins he's definitely way way smarter than me and, and <laughs> that's just that was my experience well, of reading his work anyways no tom holland's comment on richard dawkins is that he's got a thoroughly evangelical spirit you know um, <laughs> that's great in in the same sense that i was sort of describing evangelicalism where it's like trying to gamify things or, or what do you mean well just like tom holland's whole thesis is that like we cannot help but be christian like in the west mm. like if you if you really deeply understand our history, um, all our ancestors were Christian. Like we're so deeply formed in a Christian image that like we don't really we're swimming in that water, right? And so, and he traces this story about atheism, how it emerges. I think he traces it to like the papal reformations in like twelfth century or something. I think what is it? So I think the church start to reform. Like the papacy starts to reform in the 12th century, like the moral integrity of the clergy or something like that. And they're like, had these issues about how the moral integrity of the clergy. And that starts this first like impulse of reformation. Like, you know, Christendom could be improved. Um, and then like through the centuries, wait, there's wait, these... Sorry, I, I'm, I'm really unfamiliar with a lot, lot of what happened kind of awesome. all in between Me, Christ yeah, and then current too. moments. But so, so wait, what happened in the 12th century? So... I'm going to, I'll try to, try to, to do my best to Tom Holland's argument, just from, this is from his book, Dominion. Um, and I'm not a historian and I'm learning through this stuff through reading him and different books. So um, they're called like the papal reforms. So in, I think it's the 12th century, um, you get basically noises within the papacy, within the church in Rome, um, saying that, um, basically calling for like the improvement of the moral integrity and the character of the clergy of the priests. Okay. And that's called, um, I think they're called the Gregorian reforms. Um, and basically the big narrative of Tom Holland and the interesting point is like you get in there, like the seeds of reformation, right? Like the seeds of reformation within Christendom. And then, in the next century, there's more reformation. And then the next century, there's more. And he traces these stories throughout Europe of these different waves of reformation. Right. Um, 
which ultimately culminates in the Protestant Reformation. Um, so it seems that the Protestant Reformation is is one of a of a totally different kind because it's it's a or maybe not a totally different kind, but it, it, it's something that that branches off or splits off rather than reforming the whole or like. Well, that's where I was going to get to atheism, right? Because I'm trying to get to okay. we were talking about Dawkins yeah. and for Tom Holland, it's all actually in the same kind of historical okay uh, story in a way, um, and. Um, I think he traces it to the writings of St. Paul. He's a really, really interesting recommender. Okay. So he sees like these impulses of reformation throughout the Christian spirit, basically. And um, how like the Protestant reformation is like an example, a um, an imp- part of that impulse, but part of a broader story. And then, you know, once the reformation gets going, then you get questions like if all of these other gods are untrue, then, is our God true? Like, and that's like the birth of atheism. Like, and it's, but it's the same, it's the same kind of like critique that Christendom had been doing. He traces it to, um, what was it? What was it? Um, Charlemagne in France, thinking like the ninth century or something, early ninth century, Charlemagne, like, um, purging Francia, like his empire of, um, like the pagan, the pagan lands in the mm. East. And, and, that thing of like saying, oh, these are false gods, like the, the Christian God is the true right. God and like these are false. And that impulse was there hundreds and hundreds of years ago and then it just develops and then you get, um, I think it's Baroque Spinoza uh, in the 17th century, whose um, early kind of enlightenment uh, starts with the atheist noises where he's just saying like, oh, well, if we've said that about every other God, then now we're gonna what about, do it with the- what about us? Well, the, th- the thing that... I almost want to like. So I, I don't know where you were going to say as far as with Dawkins. Are, are we caught up here? Well, well that that he's imbibing a Protestant spirit and he's spreading a good news. Like he's spreading a, a light, a truth. He wants people to wake he's up, breaking the shackles of this current, you know, sort of oppressive tradition of. And, and that's always what you can kind of see as as a, as a false god, or it's like it, it's a it's a way of conceptualizing God that isn't true enough anymore. But the, the mm-hmm. thing about I, it, it, it makes sense to me that we're still struggling with this because it's it's just a, basically it's one of the easiest traps to fall into is you're just getting getting stuck in a rut. But like within Christianity, even the way we celebrate it in our in our traditions and our stories and our and our um, you know our our holidays, we kill our God every year. We we have we have a uh, a death and resurrection ceremony. We, we we tell that story every year and we're supposed to enter into that story and let our God die and become resurrected in, and get that new light and, and, and see the resurrection of Christ in our lives. But we miss that. We, we get, I don't know why. I mean, I, again, I, I guess I do know why because it's just so easy to do, but it's like we have a constant reminder there that that's the way Christianity is, you know, ought to be lived out. Through death and rebirth, you mean? Yeah, well, it's a reformation. It's, it, I mean, we we have we call it being born again, but like Christ is the figure of of God, right? And and we tell the story of Christ dying and resurrecting every year. And I and I I personally believe that the the part of the significance of telling that story every year is to remind ourselves of that experience of entering into the death of of our conception about God and and allowing Him to know 
allowing sort of a new, a reformed understanding of God, a reformation every year, you know? Yeah, I really like that way of thinking of it. I think it strikes as something very true, right? Because we do, um, yeah, I don't know, we do constantly need to be renewed and to let our old values die and our old ways of perception that are flawed in different ways die off and uh, to be re- revivified. Yeah, I think that's a very fundamental pattern. Um, Do you see that as compatible, so, or that story is as compatible with the alchemist tradition and, and their stories, or, or or is that something that's like sort of unique to Christianity? Or, or, or I mean, Christianity and alch- alchemism aren't totally on on different wavelengths, are they? So this is a question I've really been wrestling with, to be honest, because in my recent YouTube content, I've been delving more into Christian themes, and I've been going under going through a transformation, and I've been kind of like unsure about what to put out and what to even talk about because like it's a bit of a shift between worlds in a way but um so i'm still wrestling with it but i think there's a few touch points that 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 bring them together for me um one is the idea of i guess spiritual perfection and if you look at the best thing i could have for this in Christianity is the orthodox concept of theosis or Catholic concept of divinization. Um, I don't know um, if there are equivalent concepts within Protestant traditions, um, but the idea of basically spiritual perfection, uh, the idea that through Jesus, through living in grace and the grace of God, like um, perfection and wholeness is possible and that sin can be overcome and our fallenness basically our like our baseness like lead baseness like our um the the the, the flaws in our character um like have been is possible through the revelation of christ and of god to for those things to be overcome i think that is um now i don't know if that's necessarily correct theologically like i'm still learning about these things like but i i do see in both stories the alchemical story of transforming lead into gold and the christian story of transforming sin into virtue or transcending our passions transcending our sins in both of those is a is a narrative of deep transformation Mm -hmm. like the track and or reformation Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, maybe both, yeah, maybe both. I guess... Yeah, I guess well, transform- what's, what would be the difference, yeah, between transformation and reformation, or at least within the way that the historical traditions associated with those words? Because, I mean, you, you could just say that they mean the same thing, but obviously that's, that's a little bit well, conflationary. Well, like, um, this is what, again, charmed me so much about alchemy, because... You know, a butterfly is an image in nature of transformation, right? It's when one nature uh, dies, dies completely, and is reborn in another, yeah. as another nature. And I think, and uh, when, even when they do that, like within the cocoon, it literally just becomes goo. <laughs> really, I, I'm pretty sure. I, I might be wrong on that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it actually just That's returns amazing. to a, a base form of just like 
genetic goop, and then the DNA totally reforms itself into into something else. And that's why it's like if if you break open the cocoon while it's in that that transformation in that metamorphosis, it's it's not anything. So that's that's an alchemical idea. They, they call it the prima materia or the prime material. Uh, so that goop you're talking about yeah. is like the the ontological stuff of which everything's made. And the whole al- alchemical assumption is that if a thing breaks down, um, it goes into the prima materia and can be recast in the new. It is within uh, that form. tradition. Is there any sense of that that the pr- prima materia is sort of the same across is. Because th- this is one of the problems I have with like trying to p- process spiritual ideas about meaning, is that is there the is it the case that any sort of potentiality is able to inhabit any form? And I know that's sort of a, a weird question. I might need to unpack it a little bit. But is it the case? So I mean, if you just broke down broke down me into into the goo that makes me up. Could that goo within the alchemist tradition? Could that be made into a rock, or is is that is that where their intuition went? Because to me, it doesn't seem that that any matter is is capable of of sort of manifesting into any form. Like I can see that. I mean, recently on the Lord of Spirits podcast, they brought, they brought this thought experiment about the ship of Theseus, right? The idea that like, okay, this ship continues to be okay. Maybe I should tell the whole story real quick. So it's like Theseus is is this I guess Greek hero, right? Um, and there's a ship that he that he went on all his adventures on. And after he's died, they, they have this ship on display and wood begins to rot and they gradually have to replace pieces of the wood. And the question is, once they've got to the point where they've replaced every piece of wood and there's not a single original piece of wood on it, is it still the ship of Theseus, right? And their answer to it, and this seems to be the sort of more spiritual way of looking at things, is that it still is the ship of Theseus because it's still acting as the ship of Theseus. It's it's embodying that particular pattern and, and it's, you know, it's everybody who's interacting with it is interacting with it as the ship of Theseus. But so that's another it, example of the logos, right? We were discussing that. Yeah. If you want a, a crystal example of it, yeah. But so within that example, uh, I, I mean, I just, my mind kind of went wondering there. I was like, okay, so, but it's not the case that, you know, that any matter, any biological matter that exists out there could inhabit the form that is my wife. Only she can do that. There, there's only some matter that's actually capable of, of being embodied into that form. I mean, throughout her life, obviously her cells get replaced. I mean, this is something else they brought up on that podcast, that the idea that like your human body is made up of a whole bunch of different cells and they're not the same cells throughout your entire life. They get re- they get entirely 100% replaced. There's not a single one that's the same every several years, right? So the idea is that- But do you not- know about stem cells as well? It's like they're all, uh, I'm not a biologist, but um, one of my most interesting ideas learning about biology at school was the idea of like stem cells. I think all cells in our body differentiate into specific cells. So like the pattern of manifestation of our biology comes from like stem cells and stem cells are basically like potential cells. So like they could be anything and then they are something. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm just throwing yeah. that into the mix. So, so, I think so like you can get down to we... the bottom of... Hmm. Wait, and like the DNA is the logos in that sense, because like the DNA is like the code or like the word telling the potential cell to form according to a particular pathway. You go and be a heart, you go and be skin cells, you go and be hair. Like, and there's like a blueprint in right. DNA. The, in the, the, the important thing is, is though that, that that DNA couldn't reprogram a rock. 
it couldn't you couldn't just blend up a rock and throw that that stem cell in into that goo and then it would form into it's like that there's there's some material that is or there's some potentiality and, and I'm kind of using those words interchangeably but that like material matter has to do with potential it's not it's not a formed substance it's, it's like the prima material it's before being formed right and so uh, well, can you the question is can I don't know I don't know about what you're saying because a rock like what happens when something is broken down to the goop you said you know you, the goop what ha- happens when a rock is broken into the goop and what would a chemist say <laughs> what would a physicist say right yeah it's a good I, word for it because yeah. it's like it's like formless stuff right yeah um and so or, what or is the, it uh, i don't know atoms hydrogen i don't know enough about the science but like right. presumably a rock and us are made of electrons i don't know yeah. quarks, or, like, or even bel- below that yeah what is it like um gluons and <laughs> different are you serious I, I, I think that's one of the words. Yeah, but again, I, I that's don't a, know anything that's about that. a perfect that. word. <laughs> yeah, gluons. <laughs> it's with the goop stuff. But uh, you know, the goops and the gluons. Maybe you might even be. So, so I, my my first question though is that is is the alchemist intuition about this? Is it that that primal materia can be made into anything, or is that there's different categories of that primal material that can that can be like there's still limitation on it? Um, that's a hard question to answer. I think. The prima materia is associated with the the famous uh, philosopher's stone, like which is like uh, arguably the telos, the goal of alchemy, is the attainment of the philosopher's stone. And um, they just write loads of cryptic things about it, like you know, it is everywhere, it is above, it is below, and um, it is like before all of your eyes, but none of you can see it, like stuff like that. <laughs> all these mystical, all of these mystical sayings, like yeah. Um, um, so it's a hard one to answer. Like I think the alchemical intuition is that ontologically the prima materia um, is it's like everywhere. You could kind of think of it like an atom or a gluon or something like that. Um, <laughs> um, and that's the intuition. And then the idea is that nature is already transforming. Like that is the way of it. And this is connected to some of the Greek mysteries, the rites of Eleusis how um, uh, Demeter, you know, the, um, the, 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 the nature goddess Demeter, her daughter Persephone is snatched into Hades in, um, in autumn time for six months. And, uh, she weeps and then it's autumn, uh, or then winter. It's, and then, yeah. and then, yeah, Persephone returning is the spring and the summer. Um, but um, so that's another point of connection between alchemy and, so, so that story is, is the idea of 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 forms returning to formlessness and be returning to their prima materia and then they're born again. So it's again similar to the the Christian story. Or I mean, the version of that story that I heard recently, I was listening to some uh, a mythology book. I, I think it was just some guy kind of tried to simplify a lot of different mythological traditions to make them listenable. Um, I forget the name of the book, but he was telling some of the ancient Mesopotamian myths and t- talked about the descent and emergence of Inanna. Right? Have you heard that story? I haven't. Okay. It's, it's, I've, I've heard even other people kind of connect it to the story of Jonah, but it, I, I think it's one of the earliest traditions to use the idea of three days being the, um, the amount of time it takes to get to the underworld. But, um, uh. it, anyway, it's, it's a similar descent story. It's just like a goddess goes down into the underworld and then comes up in some way new, some way different. 
right? I, I, I think a lot of traditions even ultimately follow that character and say that there's a connection between Inanna and then Ishtar and, and then Istra and then uh, Persephone. Like, I mean, these are all, I think there's a continuity between those traditions. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, because I mean, it makes sense, right? Because if you, because we're talking about the myths and the stories, but if you just look at the phenomenological reality of it, of every human being who's lived, it's just like they live through, <laughs> literally, like the blooming and coming to life. And you go to sleep and you wake and... up too. <laughs> so we have a descent and emergence every single day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's just the patterns to things, isn't it? It's before so your eyes. Yeah. You didn't even see it. <laughs> Well, 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 okay, so this is another link to alchemy that brings me, I guess, to the symbolic world <laughs> is, um, is, um, that is before your eyes and you didn't see it thing is kind of like the alchemists perceive, like, they help me understand symbolism, like, help me understand what it is to have symbolic eyes and to see symbolically, because if it's before your eyes and you don't see it, then you're just kind of unconsciously in the pattern. But when you see it, like your, the meaning in your life, like symbolize, mm -hmm. and then, then it is, it's kind of like an awakening of the soul or something, or the imagination or that big dream idea I was talking about, you know, where like when you have no meaning, like going out and finding a big dream and then returning to the community, like it's, um, there's a whole phase in alchemy. They have, they have, um, they have the lead state, it's like the, you could say the fallen state in Christian terms. Um, mm, okay. The lead state, um, they have the silver state, which is like associated with the moon. And then they have like um, the reddening, like the, the, the solar, the solar state. So you have like lead, silver, gold is a basic kind of pattern to the process. And um, the silver state is, um, they call it like the lunar dawn. And this just fascinated me because they had a word for what was happening and they had a word for what was like happening in my soul as I was studying it mm. it was like when the sim when a symbol clicked for me and that's and like I was like whoa like that is a deep pattern like we just discussed like death and rebirth yeah. um something was happening in my soul where I was able to uh seeing in a way that I'd forgotten to see or something like that and it's it's interesting too because that's kind of connected with um I'm going a bit everywhere here, but that's kind of connected with the idea of the child. Like, because yeah, as a child, you're kind of like in imagination, right? And you kind of, there is a sense in which we kind of fall out of that in maturation right. into kind of that process you talked about. Like when, what, what were we saying about disenchantment and stuff? Like there is a way in which we fall into materiality or something and lose that symbolic vision. Yeah. And, part of the alchemical transformation is breaking down the fallen state and something reconstellating. And what reconstellates is first the imagination or like the symbolic vision. And, um, yeah, so, I mean that, and then, so, yeah. And then that, then I looked at Tolkien who's a super, a really important figure for me who, had used his imagination to evangelize in basically the most profound way that I had yeah. seen. Okay. So I was like, Oh wow. Like there's Christian traditions that are onto this, but in, um, 
yeah, I guess I find more Tolkien more compelling than Jung now, but Jung was one of the most pr- profound people I'd ever read and had a real sensitivity for the imagination. Um, but what did Tolkien do? He, he really did enchant, like he really fully but he, constellated the pattern or something. One of the ways of doing that, though, I think that, or, or, or maybe a key difference, though, to, to the way that Tolkien does it versus the way that evangelicals have done it is that Tolkien again he does that it does that hidden thing where he like he brings all reality into this coherence of this grand narrative and sort of makes sense of things and he doesn't but he doesn't tell you he's doing that he doesn't like people That's read the Lord of the Rings and they don't <laughs> he says that this is a fictional story you know this, this is it's presented as the fictional section and so it catches you off guard how true it feels because it, it, it doesn't, it's, it's almost like a friend recently the other day was telling me this, you know, there's the parable or the advice Jesus gives, like, don't sit, don't sit at the, at the top of the table, sit at the bottom and then you will be, you know, brought up. If you sit at the, at, too close to the head of the table, then, then the, the get the, whoever the host will come and take you and take you and put you at the foot of the table. And it's like, if you present yourself as lowly, it's like, yeah, it's something, it's like he, Tolkien presented his story as something just, this is just a story, anybody can have this. And then on its own, it reached into the soul of everybody and elevated to this, no, this is, this is beyond true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such a fascinating, I, I'm, I'm with you so much there. It's such a fascinating story because Tolkien, I had to find out that he was a devout Catholic. Like I didn't. Yeah. I had to find out and then you know there's something else with lewis as well but like there's something going on with the inklings like with that little group like yeah. there's something profound going on and um lewis um i think it's michael ward um who wrote a book called the narnia code and i've seen like a few of his lectures okay. and his basic thesis is really interesting but he kind of like decoded decoded um Lewis's Narnia stories, like the seven, right. as corresponding to the astrological seven heavens of oh, the medieval vision. Great. And so like uh, and so like each book is like um there's like one that's Jupiter and one that's the moon, like all of these different ones. Okay, yeah, can, can you and, walk me through that real quick? Because that's not that's not a um I hadn't heard of that before. So there's an astrological tradition about there being seven he- seven heavens. So this is kind of connected to like the alchemical okay. visions and stuff, right? But it's so like Right, so like we're on earth, it's um, seven heavens, what are they? So you've got like the moon and the sun, um, Mars and Venus, Mercury, Mercury we mentioned earlier, well, the Romans called him Mercury, that's Hermes, the Greek Hermes. Oh, right, okay. Um, and so you'll get it now with, with alchemy because it's connected to astrology and the above and the below and the influence of these but energies. Anyway. Mercury isn't right um, at the middle though, Mercury is like two steps away from the sun or, or um the medieval vision is different to like our oh interesting the literal okay. yeah. how, how, do you uh, know how the ordering are um oh god I, to, to, yeah um I, i'm is, not sure anyway, if is mercury the is, central is, figure like right the right in the center of the structure to sort of mediate between the sort the two deaths um of, yeah i mean i know that saturn's at the edge so, okay. I mean, I'm going to go all over the place a bit here, but so you've got Luna, Solar, like Moon, Sun, Mercury, Venus is a, 
kind of sexuality and eros. Right. Yeah. Mars is like war and aggression. Yeah. Uh, moon, Sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. They're the seven. Um, okay. I don't know if I've got the order right, but I'll have to look it up afterwards. But um, like Saturn is the image of like what is at the that's, outermost edge of sorry, all things. That's so and funny. That's, as, you're, no. as you're saying that, I'm, I'm totally got lost for a second because I'm trying to think about this in terms of this 20th century like vision of the, of the planets. And I'm like, you missed Earth. But to them, the <laughs> the Earth wasn't wasn't the same thing. It's like these are different divine entities, and the Earth is just we're just down here. We're we're in this little dome, and we're observing these these gods in the heavens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there's the terrestrial plane, and then the celestial celestial, and yeah. the heavens are yeah yeah. Sorry, and I so, you though. It's okay, but this. I'll try and stay on Lewis because this takes us off into so many really interesting yeah. areas, but like that's like old astrological knowledge. Um, and that is connected to alchemy. So you can think of alchemy as like the terrestrial equivalent of astrology. Astrology looks to the heavens. Alchemy looks to the transformations of earth, like the mineral metals, the transformation of nature here below. And then al- astrology is looking above. But um, so yeah, like this scholar Michael Ward, I, I really recommend it if you're into Lewis. It's amazing, like talk. Okay. But he he's basically written a book decoding this idea that the seven heavens of the uh, medieval uh, cosmology, um, which were discarded. He wrote a book called The Discarded Image. Oh, he's the, he's um, the author of that book. I, 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 that's that's been kind of entering into my my spheres recently too. I, 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 that's on my on my book list, anyways. I got to read it at some point. Same, yeah. I haven't, I've got it. I haven't got to it yet. Um, but like, so that image I just described of the seven heavens was discarded yeah. for Lewis. But anyway, so Michael Ward's thesis is that each book in Narnia has as its secret okay. soul. You could say, like each of the uh, each of these seven heavens, and the, the, the reason I'm telling you this story is because it's the same pattern as Tolkien. It's like it took this. No one is firstly that's not obvious from the stories at all, right. um, and the scholars just like yeah. I was always like puzzled to figure out like what like the coherence was or like what to make sense of the Narnia stories, and um, he did all this research and that's his thesis is that's the hidden key to it. And again, the reason I'm telling the story is because Lewis was doing what he told no one about this. Yeah. Some scholar had to, you know, decades later, right. really investigate and, it. And because to... you don't get the, so so what what's the important thing about doing that? It's it's that like you, you're, you don't get the credit of of having having evangelized that concept. You just do it and and you let it let it be, right? When when you explain it, then you you kind of take away the people's experience of the journey of coming to have that aha. Maybe, maybe that's part of it anyways. So something just clicked as you were talking. So in medieval interpretations like Dante, um, we had, you know, the idea of like um, the literal reading of scripture, the moral reading of scripture, the allegorical. And the fourth one is called the anagogical. Okay. And I don't fully understand what that means, but, I was just going to say, I've heard that word a couple times, but I have no idea what it means. 
So, so as you were speaking, something clicked. And okay. I, this is just an intuition, I guess. But it means in Greek, like a climb or an ascent. And um, mm. kind of like Plato's cave, like leaving the cave, like a movement. And so what I really think it might be with Tolkien and Lewis is anagog anagogy, like, um, which is really um, in some medieval, because they were both really well read in, in, med like in medieval literature. But anagogy, anagogy is okay. the way in which a story moves you. Like, that's, I guess, the best way I can put it. But like in the same way that we're moved to one day discover that about Tolkien mm. or Lewis. And it's actually a movement of our heart and our soul to is love. Like it's the kindling of love. Um, so maybe that's it because I think well, like, and, and here's a, the crazy thing that, I, that I'm just noticing right now as we're, as we're thinking about this is that, so if Lewis or Tolkien had have described their process and basically you know, threw off the curtain behind the magic trick. Well, that that's what it, it becomes a magic trick rather than an experience of this transcendental knowledge. Because as soon as you, hmm, as soon as you tell somebody the interpretation of a piece of art or a song, as if it's the interpretation, and, and that's one of the, probably the biggest mistakes. So it's like, even though Lewis may have been inspired by this, this seven heavens pattern, there's something even deeper that that pattern is getting at, right? And it's like, it's, but if, if you can just kind of tell somebody, oh, well, we've actually cracked the code and the code is just seven heavens. You suddenly get this get out of jail free card that you're no longer bear the weight of that mystery. It's just, oh, well, it's solved. I, I can vote for that thing and I can go on to the next thing. Engagement is something that demands your attention and demands you enter into it. And it's like, you, you may still have to manifest it or you still may have to kind of cut it up into a particular pattern. But, <laughs> Even the mystery is preserved. That, pardon? Yeah, the, the, the mystery, mystery is, sort of preserved is preserved because you realize how difficult it was to come there, and you know all the steps that you, all, all the information you ignored to kind of fit it into that pattern, and you realize that there's something still so much deeper than that. But that's maybe as far as you're going to go in that moment, or at least that's one way of making sense of it. But if you just look at somebody else and they say, "Okay, this is how you make sense of it," you don't even you don't you're not forced to recognize that that's not all that there is. Right. That's really, yeah, that's really perceptive. And, it, and you know, the way we grow up from children, part of that fall, and this is connected to the alchemical idea of like Saturn, like how our consciousness becomes lead like, is just literally what you said. It's like, you know, when you, if you give someone a code, if I tell you before you see a film, oh, like, this is how you interpret that film. Yeah. That is what happens in maturation, isn't it? Like as we grow, we in, we experience novel situations, and now we just go, ah, when I X, that's that, yeah. <laughs> and that's what our knowledge is. We isn't it? Like it's, it's a pattern. Yeah. We and so that whole edifice, it's the same idea of, of intelligence, right? Or at least the one you were talking about, this sort of ancient understanding of intelligence, right? Of being able to perceive certain forms or something like that. Yeah, but I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is that the you know, Jesus said something about having eyes but not being able to see. And um, the child sees, like, sees in a fully open way mm -hmm. the transcendent as it reveals itself. Yeah. And as we mature, memory or habit or knowledge or something kind of accumulates, and then we just don't 
how can we see the same thing with the same eyes again, you know, unless a piece of art, unless our imagination, do you get what I'm saying? Like if we've experienced something a hundred times, we have kind of a instant gut reaction model for what that thing is. And so there's a way in which our imagination and our eyes are diminished in their perception. And we we have eyes, but we're not able to see. And part of it, I think, the magic of Lewis and um, Tolkien's work is that it's taking these eyes that can't see and like right. kind of helping us see again in a right. way. Because they and haven't because given us that, that little, that little trick or that little, um that little skip to just say, Oh, well, this is just the pattern of Christianity. If, if you do that, you don't even bother reading the, the Lord of the Rings. You're just like, Oh, it's just a, it's a, an analogy about Christianity. Okay. I get it. I already get it. It's done. But, but if you never say that, and especially if if you like both of them, you continue to resist it your entire life, and you say no, you don't get to do that. That's not that's not what this work is. This work is something referencing some mystery, something beautiful that that can only be experienced. And after you've experienced it, you might want to formulate your experience in a particular way. Maybe that's fine. But the 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 story you tell about the experience you had with it is not the experience itself in the same way that those stories that they're telling aren't even the thing that they're referencing in themselves. It's like, you, but you have to experience those stories to realize that those stories are about some deep experience of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, as we're speaking, it makes me think about the pattern of going to church as well, engaging mm-hmm. in sacraments. And, and if you think of what Jonathan Pajot says as church as a mountain and anagoge meaning climbing or ascent, it's, there's a way in which those stories help us ascend, but also it's the same thing of what you said, like, because it's at the heart of it all is a mystery, like in the deepest sense, like an, an infinitely receding mystery. And um, our climb towards that, our ascent towards that, and our movement towards that in love, to me, that's really, that is the Christian pattern. But, um, but yeah, like, there's real limitations to just saying that. Um, it's a participation, it's a dance, it's, um, it is deeply a story, like it's a deeply, it's like a story, a myth, it's something that moves us. Um, yeah, and this yeah, connects this, what we talked about of Telos, like our aim, like the value of a story is the way it moves us, like where we go with that, you know? Um, I don't know, that's what I get from reflecting on Lewis and Tolkien's work because um, yeah it's good man <laughs> I I'm just thinking about where to go from here I, 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 I think I, I think we've we've unpacked some or we've we've dipped our toes into some very deep deep waters and i think i'm going to need some time to continue to let this stuff process in my brain and i i, I think you've re- we've I, I don't know about how you're feeling but i feel effectively reduced to, to a prima materia here and i need to let myself reform <laughs> yeah i've become a glue on <laughs> Good stuff. yeah no cool cool yeah i feel like we've been talking for a couple of hours yeah i feel like that that was that was a beautiful discussion i really enjoyed that and i really um 
Lewis and Tolkien have I've been yeah, a big fan of their work for a while and it's been good to reflect. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.